Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Undiscovered. I want to show you this picture out of Florida, these pictures out of a Burmese python. So we're looking at a CNN news clip from a few years ago. Yeah, a bit of soft news. A Burmese python was loose in the Everglades. And these snakes, these Burmese pythons, they're usually actually pretty good at hiding, but this one was bound to get noticed eventually. Because it was huge. 16-footer. It was the length of three people set end to end and as thick as a telephone pole. Yeah. Local work crews spotted it hanging out by some trees, killed it with a shotgun, and then they noticed that it had this big bulge in the middle. They cut the stomach open. We won't show you that picture. Oh. I, may, I may tweet it if you want to. If you what want was to in it? A, uh, a deer. Oh. Yeah. Like a, you know, 70-pound deer. That thing ate a deer. That's right. Um, I so do anyway. not like snakes. I do not like snakes. Burmese pythons, you might guess this from the name, come from Southeast Asia. We actually brought them over as pets. And the story goes that during Hurricane Andrew, baby snakes escaped from a breeding facility, Mm -hmm. which sounds like a horror movie. And they found that they could survive pretty nicely out in the Florida Everglades. And these things are really scary. Yeah, there are videos where alligators try to attack these things. And the snakes, the pythons are like, no, I am going to eat you. I'm going to eat you the alligator. So Burmese pythons might feel like an especially dramatic case, but chances are you've actually heard a story like this before. We move a species from one part of the world to another part of the world by ship, by plane, by accident, maybe on purpose. Anyway, a species shows up someplace new, and if it ends up doing really well in its new home... Like too well, like so well that it causes economic health or ecological problems... Then we call that species... An invasive species. Right. We've heard so many stories like this. Emerald ash borers chewing up ash trees. Asian carp crowding out native fish in the Mississippi. White nose syndrome. It's a fungus that came from Europe. It's killed over six million bats. This kind of thing is happening all over the world. But in the United States alone, thousands of new species have come in. Uh, Plants, insects, viruses, mammals. And the consensus seems to be, yeah, non-native species are bad news. A storm is gathering on the horizon. An invasion, decades in the making, is underway. An alien species is staking claim to the Americas. National Geographic really driving this message home that foreign species are invading species like the killer bee, zebra mussels, the snakehead, chestnut blight, Asian carp invasion. Uh, all right. So what what I am getting from this voice is that an army of bees and fish are swarming in. They are going to murder us all in our sleep. Mm-hmm. Though, to be fair, this is actually how National Geographic says beaver. Beaver. So nature documentaries are always going to hype this stuff up. But it's a problem people do take very seriously. The federal government has spent billions of dollars fending off these non-native species on trapping and poisoning and burning them. But some people think it's all based on a flawed premise. I began by thinking about alien species, like most of us do, as kind of a bad thing. It's foreign species coming in and taking over our ecosystems. Fred Pierce, an environmental journalist. But the more I looked into it, um, the more I began to think that's kind of a phony story. 
Fred is not alone in this. There are other people, some ecologists included, who think we're getting all worked up about species that aren't really hurting us. And that what's driving the war on non-native species, it isn't science, it's prejudice. Of course, a lot of scientists and environmentalists completely disagree. Today on Undiscovered, the fight between environmentalists over one particular species, it's a tree, it's not one you would guess would be especially controversial. No. But in the Bay Area, some people are saying it's putting lives at risk, that it could kill people, that it maybe already has. So they're going after these trees, they're chopping them down, they're poisoning stumps. They are trying to protect themselves. And other environmentalists are doing whatever they can to stop them. That's coming up. eucalyptus trees. On the face of it, they're pretty inoffensive. They're even likable. They're tall, with bluish-gray leaves. One could say majestic. One could say. And they smell, like, minty? Lemony? Kind of medicinal. Yeah, definitely not scary like pythons, right? They're trees. But according to some people, eucalyptus trees are dangerous in their own way. And if you want to see just how bad they can get, Norman LaForce says you just have to look at what happened in 1991. Okay, I'm pretty sure it started down in that area there. You see those two round tower things yeah, yeah. to the right of that? I was standing with Norman on the outskirts of Oakland, just by the side of a road. We were looking downhill at a clump of houses. The sun had almost set. This beautiful white fog was rolling in. That's amazing. That's really pretty. It was getting pretty dark, but I could still kind of make out what Norman was pointing to. There was a slope behind one of the homes. That's where he thinks the fire started. It was Saturday, October 19th, 1991, around noon. The day was warm and dry, but it wasn't too windy. So by evening, crews thought they had the fire under control. They kept coming back to check throughout the night, but everything looked good. You know, the situation seemed handled. You probably know where this is going. Here is the latest information that we have on the fire right now. Five fatalities. Nine injuries, mostly injuries from smoke inhalation in that area. The mayor of Oakland... Around 11 the next morning, while firefighters were sweeping the area for lingering hot spots, the fire reignited. And this time it was not so easily contained. Within half an hour, people were evacuating their homes. Pretty soon the roads are clogged and traffic is barely moving. The situation's devolving. They gotta leave. They gotta leave their cars here. In this video, a man is running between the cars, urging people to get out. He's talking to a woman in the front passenger seat who's just weeping with her hands on her face. On the side of the road, the fire is burning in these wild, billowing waves. Then the video cuts to people who are already on foot, weaving past standing cars. By the time officials declared the fire over, two days later, it had consumed more than 3,000 homes and killed 25 people. At that point, it was the worst fire in California's history. During the 1991 fire, Norman LaForce was living in the hills. Norman was the guy who was showing me where the fire started. I was actually out campaigning that day because I was running for election to 
El Cerrito City Council. El Cerrito is a small city in the East Bay Hills, and this was Norman's first time running for a seat. So, of course, he's going door to door. He's introducing himself. And that's when he smelled smoke. Saw embers coming down and realized there was a, there was a fire. The fire didn't end up reaching Norman's neighborhood, and his house was fine, and he won that city council seat. But Norman LaForce, he wasn't about to sit back on the sidelines on this issue. He is one of these people who gets involved in everything. Not just city council. He's active in his local Sierra Club chapter. He's founded environmental groups himself. His name pops up in the local newspapers pretty regularly. And like a lot of people, Norman wanted to know how this fire got so out of control. The FEMA report pointed out a few reasons, including hot, dry seasonal winds and five years of drought. Two big factors that, of course, they couldn't control. But Norman and other locals zeroed in on something that they could control, eucalyptus trees. It was quite apparent after reading about everything and seeing it that eucalyptus trees uh, are very fire dangerous. Eucalyptus trees are from Australia. Californians brought them here on purpose in the 1850s. And over the next few decades, they planted these trees enthusiastically, mainly the blue gum eucalyptus. And if you read newspapers from the time, you would think the blue gum was the giving tree. It was just good for everything, for lumber, windbreaks, shade, and medicinal oils, and just for being pretty. Always green. It charms the eye at every season of the year. It is tall, lithe, and graceful. To behold it swaying in the passing breezes is to behold the poetry of motion. I mean, it's a fine-looking tree, but poetry of motion? (laughs) That's strong. Yeah, that was from a particularly gushy op-ed from 1907, urging people to plant even more eucalyptus. Well, turned out eucalyptus from those plantations, the lumber was kind of terrible. It split and it warped, but it was too late. Eucalyptus was all over California. Now, all trees, any vegetation can catch fire, and eucalyptus trees were not the only thing that burned in 1991. But there are a couple of things that make these trees especially worrying for some people. First, they're oily. The oil is actually what gives them that kind of minty smell. And they also shed a lot of bark and leaves, even branches. They drop all that on the ground and form a thick litter bed, which means that there's potentially a lot of fuel to burn. So for Norman, the solution to this seems obvious. Cut down the dangerous Australian trees. Let native vegetation grow back. And this idea, it's gained real traction. The Bay Area has cut down thousands of these trees over the past few decades. And they might have removed a lot more if it wasn't for this guy, Dan Grissetti. I've lived in Berkeley, Oakland Hills since I was 13, and I'm 63 now, so 50 years. I met Dan at his house last fall, and while we were talking, his his kitten Tony was snuggled up, kept batting at the microphone. Aw, Tony. You're going to hear Tony. Anyway, while Dan and I talked, I was looking out his living room window at this green hillside. Yeah, um, really fortunate to be, Tony, really fortunate to be uh, looking out at an area that is uh, guaranteed to not be developed. It really was lush and green. And and this is the landscape that Dan's known since he was a kid. Eucalyptus have always been a really big part of that. But then... There was one uh, fateful summer day while I was riding my motorcycle down Claremont Avenue. And I had to stop because there were trees uh, falling across the road. And I parked the bike, got off, and I went up to the person who seemed to be responsible. And I asked, 
what are you doing? Who's doing this? It turns out it was a local volunteer group who'd gotten a grant to cut down eucalyptus trees. Dan doesn't remember getting a particularly good reason for why. So the discussion quickly went downhill. So Dan starts investigating. And over time, he learns it's not just this spot on Claremont Avenue. Eucalyptus trees are being targeted all over the Bay Area. And pretty soon, Dan is one of the loudest opponents of eucalyptus clearing, asking basically, can you really prove that these trees are dangerous? Like, do you have the science to back that up? Or do you have something else against them? So Dan forms the Hills Conservation Network, a little volunteer group with a mission to preserve these forests. They only have a few members, but they're very ambitious. In 2015, they actually sue the federal government over plans to clear eucalyptus in the hills. They say this is just bad fire management strategy. And the government actually backs down. They settle with Dan's group. They pull funding from two big tree cutting programs. This is a major win for Team Eucalyptus. It was effing amazing. Other people, not as pleased. Norman, the guy who gets involved in everything, a lot of his activism is with the local Sierra Club. And they had actually sued the government over these plans too, except they wanted the opposite from Dan's group. They wanted even more trees cut down. Poor government can't get anything right. Anyway, they lost that battle to Dan. And the thing about Dan that I think is interesting is it's not like he's one of these like bleeding heart tree lovers who just Mm -hmm. cannot stand to see a single tree cut down He just doesn't buy that eucalyptus trees are all that dangerous, that they are the reason the Bay Area burned so badly in 1991. He thinks people are just pinning the blame on them. Are you saying that they're basically being scapegoated in the fire debate? I think they're they're being used as a... Yes, they're being scapegoated. They're being used as a way to advance an agenda using funds that were intended for something else. Coming up one possible other agenda, and what Nazis have to do with invasion biology. Most of the stories that we hear about non-native species are not happy ones. Some of them are downright terrifying. But here's another story. It's from Puerto Rico. A few decades ago, people in Puerto Rico started moving to cities. They were abandoning farmland, farmland that had once been forest. Now, a great chance for nature to recover. Fred Pierce again, the environmental journalist we heard from earlier. But the local species couldn't do it. After all those years of farming, the soil was really badly eroded. And a lot of native plants just could not grow in it. But a foreign one, the African tulip tree, could. Suddenly, the African tulip started spreading across Puerto Rico onto the abandoned farmland. Then native birds started nesting in the branches of the African tulip. And more species came. Frogs, bats, insects. Most of them were native to Puerto Rico. Some of them weren't. But they were all living together, creating this new kind of ecosystem. So you could see that as a foreign tree invading. But from Fred's perspective, this is just nature taking over. It's just not the same nature that was there before. Dan with the kitten. Classic. 
invasive species, by the way. That is true. Anyway, Dan says some people are against eucalyptus trees because they have this idea that eucalyptus just doesn't belong here. They're not from California. They weren't here until relatively recently. But this is one of the points that people like Fred are always making. Nature is always changing. Species are always moving in and out. Case in point, 13,000 years ago, there were camels roaming North America. Camels. I didn't know this, that the camels that are in other parts of the world today, their ancestors actually came from here. So species are always moving. Nature is always changing. Who is to say which species are properly native and belong here and which ones don't? That's the argument anyway. And that might sound kind of abstract, like nature is change. But there are actually plenty of non-native animals and plants that we do like and that we actually depend on. They're just so familiar that we have stopped thinking of them as quote-unquote aliens. Cows, honeybees, wheat, soy, and chickens, like much of American agriculture, comes from other parts of the world. Right. So this idea that outsider species are bad, that we shouldn't let them in, what is that actually about? I mean, ecologists will hate me for saying this, but I think they are being xenophobic about this. Xenophobia, which, by the way, is not just a fear of foreign people. It can be a fear or hatred of anything foreign. There's an assumption that foreign species are bad in the same way that, you know, some illiberal people, if you like, make an assumption that foreign people are bad. Remember how Nat Geo talks about invasive species? An alien species is staking claim to the Americas. Some ecologists sound a whole lot like that, actually. One leading researcher once warned that a growing army of invasive species was overrunning America. And that, quote, every part of the United States is under attack. And it's not just Fred who is accusing ecologists of being xenophobic. Historians, philosophers have made this accusation, even ecologists. One of the most outspoken critics is an ecologist named Mark Davis. And he told me, yeah, this is basic xenophobia. This is us versus them. It's just how we like to divide the world. Of course, if you call somebody xenophobic or suggest that their views are somehow prejudiced, they're going to get their back up. Take what happened a couple of years ago. Dan and Norman were invited to this local synagogue to talk about the eucalyptus question. Here is how Dan, our eucalyptus defender, started off. Um, I wanted to start off um, with just a, a brief uh, uh, something to think about, and this concerns this whole native versus non-native business. So how did I get here? Um, it turned out that uh, my parents had to leave Europe in the early 40s because a gentleman by the name of Adolf Hitler was killing off all our relatives. And as a result of that, they, in, they became invasive species. They came to the United States and they produced me and three others. And now we're invasive species in this land. Now, as this is happening, Norman, he has his hands clasped in front of him and he's looking down, just fidgeting with his thumbs. And when Dan says Adolf Hitler, Norman does not say a word. But for a few moments, he stops fidgeting. He looks frozen. But eventually, it's his turn to talk. And I really resent, I have to say this, I'm sorry, I really resent the implication that I am somehow connected with the Nazis because I want to see a restoration. It's a widely understood principle of debates that if you mention the Nazis and suggest that your opponent is somehow aligned with Nazi thinking, you're very unlikely to have a productive conversation. Unless you are actually dealing with neo-Nazis or white supremacists. Right. But 
Dan, he's not just making this up. There actually is a Nazi connection here. It's a connection that haunts invasion biology because people will keep bringing it up. Michael Pollan in a 1994 New York Times op-ed, Stephen Jay Gould in an essay that he wrote just a few years before he died. Fred, the journalist we talked to, he wrote about it in his book too. So here's the connection. We know Nazis were obsessed with so-called racial purity. But some in Nazi Germany were also obsessed with purifying the land. A leading government botanist wanted to, quote, cleanse the German landscape of unharmonious foreign substance. In 1942, German botanists compared the fight against impatience parviflora, which is just a little plant with yellow flowers, to the fight against Bolshevism. They called it the Mongolian invader and demanded a, quote, war of extermination. Michael Pollan in his Times piece and Fred when I talked to him, they were pretty clear that no, they're not saying that people who want non-native plants gone are secretly fascists or Nazi sympathizers. Even Dan in that same debate where he brings up the Nazis, he says there's nothing inherently evil about native plant restoration. Still, for ecologists, these Nazi mentions, the xenophobia accusations, it's all pretty exasperating. yeah, the, the xenophobia argument just, I guess from personal level, it's not where I'm coming from. And it's not where I think invasion science is coming from. It's not this fear of the other. Sarah Kibbing is an assistant professor in the biological sciences department at the University of Pittsburgh. Sarah's an invasion biologist, and her research is all about what non-native plants are doing to ecosystems. And no surprise, she says her field is not prejudiced against non-native species. She says there are real reasons that we worry about them. Because in ecosystems, newcomers act very differently from the locals. Non-native species are different because they are dropped into a place without any of the other species that they've co-evolved with. Which, for a lot of them, is probably a difficulty if you don't have the pollinator to pollinate your flowers or you don't have a disperser to disperse your fruits. A fungus to hook your roots up with nitrogen. These are mutualistic species, right? The good guys who helped you survive and reproduce back in your homeland. And maybe that's why a lot of non-native species, they end up being pretty harmless. They show up, but they don't have their friends around them. They don't have their co-conspirators. Or the climate just isn't quite right, and they end up not doing that great. But but you also might be missing a lot of the bad guys that sort of keep you in check. Which could explain what happened with the emerald ash borer. When it landed in North America, it had this big, tasty buffet of ash trees in front of it. But it had left most of its predators and parasites back home, so it didn't have much holding it back, which is terrible for ash trees. And that is real. It is not xenophobia to want to stop a beetle, to want to save ash trees. For Sarah, that's just basic stewardship. Talking to Sarah and to Fred, who's been criticizing her field, it seemed like their differences were less about the facts than about emphasis. Like Fred, he's with Sarah on this. He says, yeah, some non-native species do cause problems, and it's legitimate to care about those problems, to worry about it, to want to do something. He just wants to remove this assumption that all non-native species are bad. Like across the board. Right. And Sarah, she never claimed they all were. But she doesn't want to take the risk given that some are. So in the end, regardless of which side you're on, it's pretty clear that when we're trying to decide how good or bad a particular species is, we can't just ask, is it from here? We have to look at species on a case-by-case basis. Which 
brings us back to the debate that started all of this for us. Eucalyptus trees. Right. Eucalyptus trees. Norman says that they are dangerous. Dan says there isn't good evidence to back that up. What does the science say? I really, I really wanted to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. So I read up on it. I contacted wildfire experts. Eight wildfire experts. Mm -hmm. And most experts told me that eucalyptus trees are a serious fire hazard. Hallelujah. Yeah. For an answer. It's, yeah, it's more complicated. I I know it is. It (laughs) always is. There was a major exception. Dave Maloney, he's actually a retired firefighter and uh, fire investigator. He is like one of the loudest defenders of the eucalyptus trees. In like the lineup of like, you know, six out of seven dentists recommend. He's like (laughs) the the seventh seventh dentist. dentist. Right. He was saying to me, sure, you've got these people telling you that eucalyptus trees are, are dangerous. But what are these claims based on? What is the actual evidence? And the truth is, I didn't have the evidence that I was looking for. A nice, comprehensive study that looks at all the factors that go into fires, litter beds, uh, oil and moisture content. Flame lengths. Flame lengths. Yep, you heard me talking about that. So much about flame lengths. We have pieces, but we don't have a study that adds up all those factors, tells us how hazardous bluegum eucalyptus trees are, and then compares them to native California vegetation, right? Because that stuff burns too, and you need to know. Compared to what? Right, compared to what? What is actually worse? But it left me really frustrated because I I had expert opinion that's worth a lot, but it was mixed and I didn't have a study to back up what they were saying. And and that is that's frustrating. But I feel like maybe it's time to step back a little bit. Fire is obviously a problem throughout California, and it's one we've been hearing about more and more. This year and last, California broke records for the largest and most destructive fires in its history. And with these fires, No one's pinning the blame on eucalyptus trees. They're blaming houses built right up against all of that very flammable wilderness. They're blaming powerful winds that dried out vegetation. Like the weather, basically the weather. The the weather and also climate change. Like you can't pin any one fire on climate change. But big picture, you also can't talk about California's fire problems without talking about climate change. In other words, California's fire problems, they are so much bigger and more intractable than its trees. But on a few dozen acres in the East Bay Hills, not far from Dan Grissetti's house, a group of volunteers is still trying to create a eucalyptus-free zone. It's actually the same group that Dan saw all those years back cutting down trees by the road, the Claremont Canyon Conservancy. There's still plenty of eucalyptus trees in the hills, but they've carved out this little native plant oasis. And they're making sure that eucalyptus stays out. See that tall thing back there? Does that look like a uke to you, John? There's a 15-foot tall eucalyptus tree. just off All the I see is this pale greenish-gray thing. It's totally blending in with the rest of the leaves and the branches. But Tom Klatt, he has an eye for this. He's a retired environmental land manager from Berkeley. And he dives right in, crawls through the bush till he reaches that uke, saws it down, dabs on a few drops of herbicide. Yes, you got it. Hooray. Another uke has bit the dust. We so found. Tom must be here. Yes. <laughs> this is the uh, fourth uke. Oh, he's got a good eye. Because... Tom has a very good eye. Tom ends up nabbing eight ukes in just a few hours, and the volunteers are clearly very impressed with his haul. They tell me no this will not stop fires from happening altogether. But having fewer ukes in general, they think it'll make them safer. 
but there are limits to what they can do. Even here, with all their hard work, eucalyptus are not giving up so easily. Is that a giant eucalyptus tree? Yeah. Is that yeah, just before we headed back to the road, I see this enormous eucalyptus tree just looming over the south side of their restoration grounds. But unless you have $10,000, it's going to stay there. That would cost $10,000 to remove? Because it's in a very remote area. Uh, the, the road is right over there, but to get to this tree, you'd have to go down and then come back up with huge chainsaws. Yeah, cutting down that one tree would cost thousands. It might be especially expensive, but cutting down big old trees is never cheap, and there are millions of eucalyptus across California. So we'll just leave that one there. More than a century ago, Californians brought eucalyptus seeds from the other side of the world. They planted them across 40,000 acres for shade, for beauty, for a lumber industry that never took off. Now they've grown up into big old trees and they're firmly rooted. Like it or not, for these Australian trees, California's home. Undiscovered is reported and produced by me, Ella Fetter. And me, Annie Minoff. Our senior editor is Christopher Intagliata, and our composer is Daniel Peterschmidt. Our production intern is Caitlin Swaljay. We had fact-checking help for this episode from Michelle Harris. I am Robot and Proud wrote our theme. Thank you to the whole Science Friday staff, as always. And also, thank you to Ray Madrigal, who videotaped the synagogue debate and let us use his audio. Finally, thank you to the many people on both sides of this issue who spent hours talking to me, taking me for nature walks, and providing me with documents. There is so much more to this issue, we barely scratched the surface, so we have some links up at our website if you'd like to learn about the science and history of invasion biology or about eucalyptus trees. Find that at undiscoveredpodcast.org, undiscoveredpodcast.org, and we'll see you next week. 